Well, I would invite you to take your Bibles and return to the Gospel of Luke, Luke 21. We have lots of, of great things to be praying for. Jeff mentioned uh, Ron and Jen up there in, in Canada, getting ready to do the work there. We also want to keep uh, Ambria Minor in our prayers in a couple weeks, well, probably a month or so. She'll be heading off to India for one year. And uh, we'll talk about a special send-off we're going to have, but he's excited about the fact that we're seeing the next generation go and, and live gospel lives wherever they are, and, and, uh, and so make sure you uh, keep her in your prayers, and especially during this time of preparation that's going on as she's preparing all that, that needs to be done to, to go work up in northern India in a hospital, and, uh, and so we want to keep her and everyone else, all of us, because we've all been left here to... Proclaim Christ until we die. So uh, would you just join me in prayer here as we get settled? God, I do thank you for Christ, our rock. I thank you that we can cling to him and find protection and cleansing. And, and Lord, that is just so incredible to, uh, to think about all that we have in you. Help us now to focus our hearts and our minds on you what it means to live our lives for you, what it means to, to surrender, holding on to this world, and to place your kingdom above all other kingdoms. God, I thank you for those in our midst that, that are willing to go, to take it to that extreme, for those that are here that are still saying, God, the end all isn't my job, it's, it's, it's using what you've placed, where you've placed me to live for you, and Lord, I pray that uh, we would spur each other on that way and, and to, to maximize this vapor of life that we've been given. Thank you, God, for your word now. May we learn much from it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you'll notice in your, your, your bulletin that I've entitled this sermon, This is Not a Sermon on Giving. The reason why is we're up here to the widow's mite, the story of the widow's mite. And the story of the widow's mite tease up a wonderful sermon for pastors if you choose to just take the story itself, right? You could, I, could, I could get you today, you know, if you think about it, because we got all the makings of a great story. We got this widow who has nothing, and she gives all that she has. We got these rich people who have a lot, and they give a little bit. And think about the sermon that I could preach from that, right? I could, I could preach a great sermon from that. I could say, now listen, this widow had nothing, and she gave it all, all of her money to God because she knew God was her provider. These rich people, they lived for their money. They held on to it. They only gave a little bit. But judgment's coming to those rich people. And so today, when you tithe, who are you? Are you a widow or are you a rich person? The ushers will come now to take the morning <laughs> offering, right? I mean, I... This just tees up wonderful. We could launch a whole building program from this, from this passage if we wanted to, and I could guilt you in to whatever I would want to guilt you into if we just look at this story and we just get caught up with the story in isolation of the rest of Luke. But this week when I was studying it, Monday, I was looking at it Monday morning, and I was thinking to myself, this cannot be about tithing, right? You cannot just go here and just say that Jesus is over here warning people about you know, scribes, and then, and then right after the story, he's judging people and telling the temple's going to come down. And 
Judgment's coming in Jerusalem, and in the middle of all this warning and judgment, oh, by the way, let me give you a few tips on how to, t- how to tithe. It didn't make sense to me that that's what he would be talking about. And so in, in looking at the passage, I began to wrestle with it, and, and, and it was a lot of wrestling, a lot more wrestling than I thought there would be. And I began to realize, I think there's lots of stuff going on in this passage. And I think that this story and this account here is not here just to give us a few little lessons on what we should do when we drop our money in the offering box back there. I think there's a lot more. In fact, I think when, when I look at this passage, I begin to realize that it's a convergence of things that are going on. It's a convergence of things. In fact, this story provides a, a, an incredible example of almost everything that Jesus has been teaching in the Gospel of Luke. Everything that Luke has been focusing on seems to come to bear at this moment. And that this story really transitions us from, from all the warnings and the passages all the way to show us in a very simple illustration why judgment was coming upon Jerusalem. Why the temple was going to be destroyed. Why these people were in the trouble they were in. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at this passage. I want us to, to uh, unpack it, to struggle with it a little bit. I cannot tell you that, that I understand it completely. But, but I do want to offer you what I think, at least at one level, is, is a layer of how to understand this passage. And I think what it will do is it will challenge all of us. It has for me. It, it'll challenge us. And it's going to challenge us in some very specific ways, which I'll get to in a minute. But in order to really understand this passage, I just want to set the context for it. I want to do kind of the immediate context of it, of this story, and then I want to put it, place it in the bigger context of Luke. The reason why I want to do this is because it is easy to get caught up in this widow's mite story and, and to look at what she did and to look at all that she gave and to contrast her with these rich people who didn't give as much and to just kind of make her the focus of the story. Now, she's a very critical part of the story. But just to make that one action the sum total of all that we're to get out of it. And I don't want to do that. And the reason why I don't want to do that is because I don't want to be actually in danger of preaching a sermon that would actually be the very thing that Jesus is condemning. This whole passage flows in a context of condemnation. And I could, if I chose to go down the road to make this a sermon on giving, I believe that I might be in danger of preaching the very thing that the judgment of God was falling upon Israel for. And I don't want to do that, right? That's kind of goal number one in preaching, right? (laughs) (laughs) Don't be judged in in a bad way by God, right? Don't say bad things. And so so I don't want to do that. So, So what I want to do is I want to place it in its context, kind of unfold for you how I see this fitting in the flow, and then we'll unpack it together, and then you can decide what you think. But, uh, but let's just place it in its immediate context. In its immediate context, it flows in the middle of, of, of a whole set of experiences Jesus is having in the temple. He's come into the temple. He's teaching in the temple. The, uh, the, the, the temple leaders, we'll just call them the, those, they're, they're scribes and priests and elders. These temple leaders, they have a problem with Jesus. They're afraid to confront him because they don't want to have the people turn against him because the people really like Jesus. And so they... Uh, they decide they're going to try to trick Jesus, right? We looked at this, and, and, and the, their goal was to try to see if they could toss out kind of questions that would cause him to violate Roman law, and then they could tattletale on him to the Romans and let the Romans arrest him. 
So he's in this theological interchange. In the course of this interchange, he brings judgment upon them, and he says, listen, you guys are judged by God. The kingdom of God's going to be taken away from you. This is bad. You're in a bad place. And then Jesus warns his disciples, you have to beware these scribes. They are bad, bad people. And then he observes this widow in the temple. And then he proceeds to say, the temple is going to be destroyed. So there's the immediate context. And we have to say, how does this one little story fit in that immediate context? How does that help us understand Luke's argument of where he's going? Now, there's something that we learn from this widow if we kind of pull out to the broader context of Luke. One of the things that we learn in the broader context of Luke is that Jesus is the king. He's trying to show us this. And what does it mean to live for Jesus? And one message that Luke has been saying over and over and over again is that to live for Jesus means that you are all in. He is everything to you. He is 100% everything. And Jesus says over and over again that you're either all in or you're all out. You either serve me 100% or nothing. 90% is nothing. You are all in or all out. It's incredibly intense. That was the surprise of Luke for me, how strong Jesus was in saying you're either all in or all out. And to be all in says, I, I'm not living for the world anymore, man. I am living for the kingdom of God. And so the stuff of this world doesn't matter to me. And I think in the broader context, this woman clearly illustrates that, doesn't she? She's all in, man. She gave it all. And so she does become a picture of this theme of Luke. What does it mean to be all in? But at the same token, we're going to begin to see the contrast of what does it also mean to be religiously lost. What does it look like to be religiously lost? And how do these two things play out? And suddenly this moment becomes an illustration of everything that's going on in Luke and the final illustration as to why judgment was coming upon Israel and the temple. So we're going to see all that today. Now here's how we're going to see it. We've got an outline there in the bulletin. I'm going to make one correction. I sent the wrong outline to Maddie this week, so this is my fault. But just three things I want to show you. I want to show you what Jesus saw, and what I meant to say was what Jesus said, and then what Jesus meant. What he saw, what he said, what he meant. And here's the point I think that this story is. I don't think the point of this story is when you tithe today, give 100% of your income. Right, which would be the only, if I made this a, a sermon about tithing, this woman gave 100% of her income. And so I don't think the point of this is that today we better get some really, really big checks in the offering box. You better give all. I don't think that's the point. I think the point of the story is not how much do you give to God. I think the point of the story is, do you live for God? Do you live for Him? Do you live? Are you saying, I am all in? And I think that's the point. And I want to show this to you. Let's begin just by looking at what Jesus saw. We're going to unpack the layers that are here. I think there's lots of layers in this, in this story here. And we're just going to kind of unfold these layers just by following the flow of the text. Notice verse 1 with me. Let's look at what Jesus saw. Verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Now in Luke's account, here's the way Luke records this. You have Jesus looking up. You have Jesus seeing something. 
Mark is the other place where this account is shown. And Mark has a little bit of a delineation, same exact context, but they have Jesus walking away and then observing this in the temple. I think they both are fairly the same. The point is this, that Jesus had given a warning and then he saw something and he pointed this out. But what I want you to notice, though, is the broader context of, of, of what he saw because he looks up, he sees this, but I don't think Luke wants us to forget what Jesus just said. So let's just take a jump back. Jeff read this for us earlier to verse 45. Let's put this moment of what Jesus saw in the temple in light of what he just said to his disciples. Verse 45, it says, And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So there's six things he says. You've got to beware of these guys. Here are the six reasons why. Number one, they love to walk around in long robes. The idea is these flowing robes. You know, when they walked in, they wanted everybody to know, I am a religious leader. I'm going to put on these flowing robes and I want to stand out from the crowd. I, I want everybody to see how glorious I am. Okay? They love the greetings in the marketplaces. They love people saying, hey, religious leader. I don't know what they would have called them. You know? <laughs> but they love that. They love that honor. They love the title that came with their position. And they love the fact that when they walked into a room, everyone saw them and, and recognized them. They love the best seats in the synagogues. When they would go and travel around the Roman Empire and they would go worship in a synagogue, when they walked in the front door, they got the best seat. Same thing like we might do if some prominent, you know, rock star radio preacher came in here and we all knew him and you know we oh, sit in the front row you want to preach right we just like you know put on they love that they love that position they love the places of honor at feasts you know the jews had lots of feasts and at every feast they were sitting at the place of honor got to eat first they devour widows houses we'll leave that one alone for a minute and they love to pray long prayers for pretense Right? I mean, they like the, the King James prayers, right? They just kind of let, let the big words flow for long periods of time so everyone knows the totality of their theology every time they open their mouth. So he's saying, okay, these, these guys, they, what they do, they do for their own pride. Now, in that list of six things, the fifth one is the weird one. They devour widows' houses. Right? If you took that one out, all the rest of them make sense, right? Ego, pride, walking in, status, Everybody giving you honor. But then, like, how do they devour a widow's house? They go in there with hammers and baseball bats and just, you know, just smash the houses up. It seems weird, doesn't it? And when we read that last week, I'm sure you probably went, what in the world? Why didn't Steve comment on it? Well, because I don't think he can comment on it until we get to this week. What does it mean to devour a widow's house? Notice he doesn't say they devour widows. It isn't that this widow's come and they're, like, beating them up or casting them out of the, the temple. But they're doing something to their living. They're making it hard for these widows to live. Okay, so he says, beware of these guys. Now, then, the next thing that happens is that Jesus is in the temple. We're back to verse 1 again. He looked up. He saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box. When you think of the offering box, don't think of our offering boxes. Think of more of like a, like a pear-shaped kind of thing small little funnel at the top so you put your coin in you can't get your hand back in there to get it out right you know once it's in there it's in there and uh and they look like trumpets in fact 
I think that's the imagery uh, when Jesus said that uh, the rich love to sound the trumpets when they give. The idea is like, you want to put a big coin in there and let it bang down at the bottom. Everyone knows you're giving. You know, they, they like that. They, they like to, to make that thing ring when they would give. And in the temple, there were lots of these trumpets, these boxes everywhere, because you, they were all subdivided. You could give towards this, give towards that, you, you know, tons of things you could give towards. And, uh, and the picture here is that, that this is the Passover week. And so because it's Passover, you got people from all over the Roman Empire coming to the temple. And for some people, this is the only time of the year they come to the temple. So they, they've got their offerings. And they're going to go down the, the way and just drop them in the different offering bins and, and give their money. And it's a big event. So I'm picturing thousands of people kind of lined up, ready to drop in the money and letting it ding down in the bottom, let everyone know what they're giving. So Jesus is sitting there. He's watching these people drop their money into the different trumpets. And then what happens? Verse 2. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Okay, so, so she's a widow. It's clear because in that day a widow would have worn a certain shawl. She's poor, obviously, probably you can tell just by the way she's dressed. Doesn't have fancy clothes on. And she puts in two small copper coins. These coins were called leptas. Leptas. Smallest coin the Roman Empire minted. A lepta was, a, was basically in our day is worth less than a penny. If a lepta was on the ground, most people wouldn't have picked one up. Kind of like today, if someone drops a penny, they don't go run around and search for it. Okay, so this is worth less than a penny, just two of them, and she drops these two leptas into the offering bin. So now, what we have are all the players in our, in our, in our situation. We have all our players. We have scribes. What are the scribes? They are serving themselves, and we know that they devour widows' homes. Okay. We have the rich people giving their offering. And we have this poor widow who gave two leptas. That's what Jesus saw. It's everything that he saw. He saw these religious leaders and how bad they were. He saw the people who were giving, the rich people, and he saw the poor widow. Now, hopefully what you see here just from what Jesus saw is that there's a lot going on in the temple at this moment. There's a lot going on, right? A ton of stuff happening here. So now what we have to do is we've got to move from what Jesus saw to what Jesus said. Now we're going to move to our second point. What did he say at this moment? Look at verse 3. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, truly, you've got to note those trulys. Sometimes Jesus would say truly, truly, truly. Or older translations, verily, verily. Or, like I think NIV might be, I tell you the truth, might begin that way. When you see that, it's actually the Greek word, amen. We close our prayers, amen. It means so be it, or thus, you know, be the will of the Lord, that type of saying. Usually a person would end a statement with a truly, or other people would respond with a truly. Jesus was the only person who would insert a truly before he spoke. And sometimes he'd put two of them in there. Truly, truly, verily, verily. 
And when he would do this, it's basically a way of, of emphasizing something. It's an emphasis. It's not implying that when Jesus didn't speak other times, it wasn't absolute. But it's kind of a way of saying, you better catch this. Don't miss what I'm about to say. What I'm about to say is binding, absolute, whatever you do, do not miss this. So when he begins by saying amen, or amin is how you pronounce it, amin, when he begins that way, he is making a statement. He's getting everybody's attention. He says, amin, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Why? They contributed out of their abundance. She, out of her poverty, put in all she had. So you get the idea. You don't have to be a huge theologian to figure out what happened. She only had two leptas to her name. She gave the two leptas. These people were very rich. They just gave out of their excess. So percentage-wise, she gave more, right? If all you own is two leptas and you give it, you gave 100%. If you owned millions of dollars and you just put in a few thousand, you just gave a small percentage. And he's saying, now do you understand that she has given more than all of these people? She gave 100%. She walks away and she has nothing left to live on. She walks away, there is no food for her. She can't buy any food. She will leave the temple poor, destitute, with nothing. Think about that when you write your tithe check today. No, I'm kidding. Right? Right? So, so now the question is, what do we do with that? How do we understand this? What is the point Jesus is making? Well, before we answer that question, let's go on. Because we're going to jump in a little bit further. Let's jump into verse 5, because that's not all that happens. So, rich put their money in, she puts her money in, Jesus makes the observation, she's given 100%, they've only given a small percentage. At the same time while that's going on, notice what verse 5 says. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he says, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay, so now at the same time, we got people walking around looking at the temple. Why would you have this happening? Well, remember, this is the Passover. People are coming from everywhere, right? Dispersed Jews that are living in Turkey and Iran and Iraq and, and all kinds of places. They're, they're coming from Egypt. They're coming from around the Roman Empire. They're making their way into Jerusalem and they know they're going to go to the temple and give their offering. And this temple was beautiful. The stones were huge. When they rebuilt that temple, when Herod got involved, he, he put some of the biggest stones ever in construction. And I don't know if you've ever been by an old building built with huge stones. But to me, I've seen this. I've seen old, old buildings with massively huge stones. The, the masonry stonework that's done is incredible. That by hand, they can make these things fit together and make these blocks exactly the size they need to be. To work with something so huge is a marvel of engineering and architecture and, and skilled craftsmen. Well, so this temple, that's what the people are noticing. They're walking through, they're seeing this temple, they're seeing the stonework, and inlaid in all of the, the, the stone is gold. So picture big, huge stones with gold everywhere. 
And they got this gold from the offerings that were given. So people would give their offerings in the temple. They would melt some of that gold down, and they put it into the walls of the temple so it's everywhere. It was beautiful, just gorgeous. The amount of gold, they say, was beyond belief. In fact, when the Romans came in and destroyed the temple in 70 A.D., they said it took about a month for that temple to completely burn down. And they said gold was running out. Josephus said gold was running out of the temple down the hill like a river as it was burning. That's how much gold there was in it. So you can imagine, if you, let's say you were a dispersed Jew and you were living in, in Egypt and this was your once a year trip in, big family trip, you bring them all into Jerusalem and you're in the temple and you're like, oh my, this thing's gorgeous. So the people are dropping their money in and then just like in awe of this thing. And they're all talking about the stone work. They're talking about the offerings. That's what's being said there, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. What that means is it's adorned with the gold that came from the offerings. And they're just in awe, man. Their money has built this beautiful building. And they're in awe. And, of course, Jesus doesn't let a good teachable moment pass by, does he not? And he says, all these things that you see, the days are coming. There will not be one of these stones left. Now next week we'll unpack it, Lord willing, what this whole destruction of the temple is. But he basically says this temple will be destroyed. Everything that you're marveling at will be gone. That's what he said. So two things he says at this moment. First is, this woman has given more and all the rest of these rich people, because she gave 100% of her income. Second, this temple you love will be destroyed. Okay. So here's what we have now. We've got this incredibly tense moment. You could imagine what these people were thinking when they heard this. Now, we've already learned some things from Jesus about the temple when he went in and cleansed the temple. And we know a few things about the temple already, so we should know why it's going to get destroyed, right? Because the temple was designed to be a place where God was worshipped by everyone from all humanity, everyone from every tribe and nation. The temple was the place where the presence of God was to dwell. The temple was the place where the heart of God was to be. It was the place where people were to be devoted to God, right? He, he wanted all the nations to come and worship him, that his presence was going to be there, and, and that his heart... And his character would be seen on display. What did they do with the temple? Well, they drove out the place for the nations. They put the money changers and the Gentiles were supposed to go. right? So they were supposed to do that. They ignored the presence of God because they loved their own glory. They made it about them. They totally missed the heart of God. How do we know that? Well, I'll give you a little insight. Why is there a poor widow in their midst? We're going to talk about that in a minute, but why is there a poor widow in their midst? She shouldn't have, right? How, how could she be that poor? Would there be that much gold in the temple? They missed it. They missed the heart of God. And then, as a result, they've worshiped themselves because they make it all about them, what they want. They made a temple after their own image, not after God's own heart. Yeah, it's going to be destroyed. Okay, so here's our setting then. 
Jesus warned these disciples about the false, these false temple leaders. He observes the giving of the temple. He then announces it's going to be destroyed. Now we're going to answer the question, what did Jesus mean by all of this? Okay, what do we do with this information? We saw what he saw. We heard what he said. Now we're going to answer the question, what did he mean? Okay, what did he mean? Well, like I said, there's layers in this account here, and I believe there's three layers we need to look at. The layers are the religious leaders, the rich people, and the widow. I think we've got to look at all three of those layers there. And when we see the religious leaders, the, the rich people, and the widow, I think we'll start getting the heart of what this widow's might story is about. Let's look at the first people. The first group of people are the temple leaders. We've already been told that they devour widows' homes, which means that they make it hard for widows to live. Now, when we read that, you might think, why would he say that there? Right? We understand, we talked about all the prideful statements that are made, but why toss in this thing about widows? Well, you have to understand something. The law says a lot about widows. It actually includes them in with sojourners, includes them in with, with strangers. And God made it clear to Israel. He said, listen, you guys were under a famine, and the Egyptians took you in, and they provided for you. And as a result, that has to be your heart. That when somebody who is in need is in your presence, when somebody you don't know is in your presence, when somebody's walked in your door, you better say, my job is to love you and care for you. My job is to make your life knowing that you are loved by me. Because you know what? You were cared for by the Egyptians. Therefore, you have to show this heart. This is my heart. And if you miss this point, you've missed my heart. And he said, this is especially true when it comes to the care for widows. You have to care for them. And I want to show you how intense this is. Just look at Exodus 22. Okay? In Exodus 22, he talks about the widows. Puts them in the context of sojourners. In Exodus 22 Beginning at verse, well, I'm just going to start at verse 21, but really 22 is where the widows start. He says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt, right? A stranger comes in, he says, you better say, my job is to love you, stranger. You better not just say, stranger, you mean nothing to me. You're welcome to join me, but you mean nothing. No, you better better show the love that you received. And then he goes on, and he says this, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you don't care for them and they cry out and say, Lord, I have nothing, then I'm going to kill you. And I'm going to make your wife a widow, religious leader. You better understand this is my heart. Right? Just this one passage alone shows you how serious God takes this. Right? Saying, listen, when, when there's somebody in need, you better meet that need. You better care for the sojourner. You better care for the stranger. You better care for the widow. And I'll tell you what, if any widow is crying out because they're in need and you're not meeting it, 
Judgment and wrath are coming upon you. This is what he told the leaders of Israel. So now, when Jesus says they devour widows' homes, you can see what Jesus is saying. You have touched the very heart of God. Did you know that the word hospitality actually means someone who loves a stranger? Someone who loves someone they don't know. One of the qualifications of an elder is to be hospitable, a lover of strangers. Why? Because we were strangers and alienated from God, and he loved us, and he brought us into his family. When Israel was aliens and strangers, the Egyptians took them in. We who have been taken in and cared for by God must show the heart of God. And God's saying, this is my heart. You cannot miss my heart. And if you missed my heart, you have missed me. And religious leader, if you're going to miss me, I'm not going to allow you to misrepresent me. And judgment will come your way. Judgment will come your way, leader. You see, the message to the religious leaders is this. The story should have never begun. There was a poor widow in the temple. That should have never happened. You should have never had a building inlaid with so much gold that it flows out like a river. Should have never had that. The heart of God is to take what you've been given and to give it away to people who, don't need, who are in need of it and who don't deserve it. The heart of God is to say, I'm going to show compassion on those who don't deserve it. I'm going to show mercy on those who don't deserve it. I'm going to pull in people who don't deserve to be pulled in, and I'm going to make them part of my family. That is the burden that is on the leadership. They miss that. And as a result, they take the money that comes from the temple and the temple offerings, and they convert it into long, flowing robes for themselves. They converted into beautiful buildings with beautiful gold inlay things. They, they converted in such a way like those, many of those charlatans on TV that take advantage of people who are sick and in need and, and ask for their money so that they could take that money and build themselves beautiful mansions. And God says, I hate that. I loathe that. Judgment's coming. You see, layer one is these religious leaders he didn't care for this woman. But there's a second layer that's here. The second group are the rich. They're, they're the second group in this. They're the rich. What do we know about the rich? We know one thing. They were not all in, right? Jesus made that clear. They only gave a little bit. They only gave out of their excess. And I don't think the issue here is, 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 is that, that, that Jesus is really marking your bank account. I think the issue here is how much does this world own your heart? I think that's the question. You know, if something doesn't mean anything to you, then you give it freely. Silly illustration. You know, but you know me, I like tea, right? And Lipton really isn't tea, okay? What particle board is to wood, <laughs> Lipton is to tea, okay? It's just tea scraps run through some little Lipton machine and, and all that. Okay, but here's the point. I have Lipton tea in my home. And if you're not a tea connoisseur... I will freely give of you my Lipton tea, right? Because it means nothing to me, right? Because it's not really tea, okay? It's just tea scraps. 
okay? And if you, it's okay. It has a taste, right? It has its own taste, and, and, and that's okay. And, but, but the point is this. It doesn't really mean a lot, and I will freely give it. There's other teas in my house that if you don't like tea, I will have to work on my grip of the world to let it go. Because if you say, I don't really like tea, I'm a coffee drinker, well, then you're not giving, that's an expensive box of tea there, and I'm not letting you have any of it, okay? Because that could maybe grip my heart a little more. Now, this is a dumb illustration, right? But the reason why I'm using this illustration is this. Whatever you hold on to loosely, you give freely. But whatever owns your heart, you hold on to it tightly. And so the question here is this. They were holding on. We don't know why, but Jesus points out they were not freely giving. And maybe we can draw an assumption based upon all of these illustrations of money that comes up in Luke, like the rich young ruler. Jesus says, sell everything and give it to the poor. Or Zacchaeus, who had stolen from people and then he gave it all away freely. But I think the picture here is this, that sometimes money becomes the barometer of how much you love the world. At least how much it owns you. Because whatever doesn't own you, you give away freely. But whatever owns, owns you, you hold on to it tight. And I think we have a picture here of people who are not all in. Or people who are caught up in the beauty and the glory of the temple. And all the gold and all the beautiful work and all the stuff they have. And, and they're caught up in, in, in the religious facade of buildings and money and success. And, and they're holding on to all that. That's what owns them. But we also have a third party in this, not a group, it's one person, the widow. The widow has nothing. She was not cared for by anyone that we know of. She's poor. Obviously, she's, you know, she's given two leftists. She's got nothing. Nothing at all. But she gives it all. She reminds me of Zacchaeus. Just giving it all to you, God. Take it. Now, Jesus doesn't offer any observation on her heart. He just says she gave more than the others. We can assume from Luke, because of the way Luke deals with money, that her giving it all away is in the same vein as Zacchaeus. It's kind of a conjecture there, but I think it's a safe one. But I think the picture here is this. This world did not own her. And so she freely gave. So there's our... There are our layers. What did Jesus mean by all this? I believe Jesus shows us this story of the widow's might to teach us something. I don't think he's teaching us how to tithe, but I think he's teaching us how to live. And I think he's illustrating something for us. I think he's illustrating the reality of what it looks like to live for God <laughs> and what it looks like to pretend like you live for God. And I think that's the difference. And I think that's the heart of this passage. The religious leaders, they are not moved by the heart of God. The religiously lost people are not giving out of an abundance of what they've been given. But this woman gave it all even though she had nothing. So, what do we do with this? How do we do this? Well, like I said, we've got these three layers, right? These religious leaders, 
position, glory. They're not using the position of leadership to care for those in need. The rich, they're holding on. They're only giving when they have excess, only giving out of their excess, and the widow gives it all. How do we apply this? Well, I want to apply this, maybe give you three different layers of applying this. First, I just want to give you what I'm just going to simply call the personal application. First, just a personal application. What's the personal application? It's simply this. What kingdom do you live for? I think, you know, when I came out of this passage, I came down realizing this is not teaching me how to tithe. As I said, it's teaching me how to live. And the question is this. What kingdom am I living for? If I live for the kingdom of this world, then I will hold on to my possessions. I will hold on to this world. And I will fit God in in religious festivals and seasons and different things like that. But I, I really won't be saying, I'm all in for you, Jesus. It's more like, Jesus, I need you to kind of bless what I'm into. Right? But I have to realize three things if I'm going to be living for the kingdom of God. Three practical things hit me. And it's this. The first one is this, that all that I have, all that we have, all that I have is from God. Everything I have, my house, my car, my money, my life, my job, my family, my wife, my children, everything is from God. There is nothing I have that he did not choose to bestow upon me in his good favor and grace. All I have is from him. Therefore, all I have is for God. You've given this to me, God. How do I use it for you? I'm not going to become you know, an aesthetic to such a degree that I say all that I have is from God. Get rid of it all. You know, go bury yourself in a cave somewhere and just pray. Right? I, don't, I don't think that's the key. He's given me what he's given me. I'm not the one who was chose to be born in Elmhurst, Illinois to the parents I had. That was God's choice to put me there. That was God's choice to put me in a middle-class home in the suburbs of Chicago. That was God's choice. That was God's choice to bring me here to earn the salary I earned, to have the house I have. I am not going to bemoan God for giving me too much, and I'm not going to bemoan God for not giving me enough. I'm just going to say, God, you gave me what you gave me. Now, how do I use this for you? Because all that I have is for you. But then there's a third reality that's come. That not all I have is all from God, and it's not all for God, but all that I have is to God. What do I mean by that? He gives it to us so that he would get all the praise. So God, you're going to bless me with the house I have? Great. How would I use that house so that you would get glory, God? How would I use my car so you would get glory? How would I use the money I have so you would get glory? How would I use the family I have so you would get glory? How would you use my marriage so that you would get glory? Right? That, that kind of thing. Just, it's that kind of thinking to say, you know what, I'm all in, God. All in does not mean that I'm going to sell it all and go become a monk somewhere in a cave. It just means suddenly the real, realization is that all that I have is from God, all that I have is for God, and all that I have is to God. That simple worldview is, is, is the simple worldview of what it means to be all in. So there's your personal application. Second application. I'm going to call it the training application. The training application is this. What are we teaching our children by the way we live? So parents, I want you to stop and think about what you live for each day. What motivates you when you get up? These are some convicting questions. 
What motivates you when you get up? What drives you? What drives how you spend your money? What drives what you worry about? What drives what makes you angry? Whatever it is, if you have children, this is what you're teaching them to live for. So as we think about this, the challenge to us is not just give more money. The challenge is do I live for God? And am I teaching my children that all that we have is from God, all that I have is for God, and all that we have is to God? So let's use it for him and to him. Let's be faithful stewards of it. So what are we teaching it's amazing if you take a step back and think about all the things that you get angry about and all the things you worry about and all the things that drive you each day and all the things that motivate your day. You have to realize all of those things are what you're teaching your children to live for. So that's a heavy point, but we got to think about it because we want to raise up a generation of people who are all in, don't we? Right? Third, church-wide application. I might even say it this way, a leadership application. But I want you to stop and think, when it comes to Kishwaukee Bible Church, our church is not the end all to life, right? The whole goal for us is not to build a big temple with gold streaming things and all this kind of stuff and to say, this is what, we're going to build a little empire to ourselves. The reality is this. You want to know the heart of, you know, if we're going to be an organization, if we're going to be a group of people that are saying, we are an outpost of God's kingdom here on earth, then we have to have God's heart. We have to have God's heart. We cannot build a religious facade and a religious church with all the good trappings and good Sunday school and good youth ministries and good music and, you know, and everything's good, but we don't have the heart of God. And God made it clear in both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that he is a God who redeems, who pulls people in, who loves people who's engaging with his mercy and his grace and his gospel and his compassion, that the work of the cross is one that makes me so thankful that there is no way that I cannot display that to others. He's a merciful God. He's a kind God. And he's saying, listen, to be a leader of the gospel is in the truest sense to be hospitable, to love the strangers, to love those in need, to say, listen, I was a stranger, alienated from God, ready to receive his wrath, and God and his love spared me, and through Christ redeemed me, and by faith I'm saved, and now I want to be an agent of that. I want to tell the world that, and I want to show the world that. That's got to be our heart. It has to drive. So whatever we form, whatever we form into as a church, if we miss the heart of God, that form is worthless. And God proved that by tearing down the temple himself, by allowing the, the Romans to come in and destroy it because he says, if you don't have my heart, then you're not getting my building. They miss that. They got driven out of the land because of it. Did not have the heart of God. And we need to make sure. And leaders, elders, deacons, future elders and deacons, this is not about whether or not you're a good leader. It's not about whether or not you're a good manager. It's not about whether or not you're a good businessman. It's not about whether or not you've got things all in order, or the ducks in a row. To be a leader in, a, in this church, we have to have men who will say, I'm, I'm driven by the heart of God. I'm driven by his truth, by his gospel, by his heart. So that we will not lose sight of that because that's what's important to God. I think those are the layers in the story and I want us to remember, this is not a story about tithing. It's a story about living. 
And we've got to come to grips to say, whose kingdom are we living for? Would you bow your head in prayer with me? Father, I thank you for this account and the way that you recorded it. Lord, I think about those leaders that missed your heart. You made it so clear that they were to love the widows, and they didn't. They just, they, they didn't. They didn't see them. You made it clear in your law time and time again that if they missed it, you were going to kill them. That's how important that was to you. Lord, I pray for myself and for every leader and future leader of this church that we would not lose sight of your heart. That we would not reduce hospitality down to just whether or not we invite people over for dinner. That we would see that true hospitality is an in inward love, an inward love for those who are far off, an inward love for those in need, an inward love for those who cannot care for themselves, and that we would be driven by that heart. Lord, I pray for those in this church that maybe are religiously lost, maybe they just living out of their excess, they have a form of godliness, but have missed the heart of godliness. And I pray today that, that this challenge wouldn't just be a challenge that they should give more money. I pray today that this challenge would be a challenge to, that they would say, who am I living for? Do I see all that I have is from you, and for you, and to you? Lord, convict them with that and show them that reality. And I do pray for those in our midst who, who are all in. God, would you bless them richly? And Lord, even on another level, I pray that you would just give us eyes to care for people today. That we wouldn't even just get up from, from, from this moment and just move on with our agenda and our checklist of people we need to talk to. But God, give us a heart to talk and to care and to reach out to meet people we've not met and to, to move in such a way that we begin to show that caring love that you showed towards us. Lord, I pray that we would live for you as your people. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.